Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and, of course, all things electrically related. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host, as always, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. And I just want to let you know that these podcasts are available on Spotify, Spreaker, iTunes, iHeartRadio, all the different podcast platforms, as well as over on our YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube channel, you can actually load the app on your phone and you can actually watch videos or even listen to our podcast all from your YouTube app. Just go to youtube.com forward slash master the NEC and you'll see all of our content and you might have to scroll down because we have quite a few years of archived information and a lot of it's still relevant. So make sure you check it out. Now, if you're tuning in today, you're tuning in because you want to listen to part two of a multi-part series where we talk about Article 695 for fire pumps. And so we're going into pretty good detail. Again, it's still a 30,000-foot view. We're not getting into the minutia, but we're explaining the things that you need to know uh, about fire pumps on a day-in and day-day basis if you're going to be working with fire pumps and things that you have to consider. Now, we even dug deep in the first part uh, when it comes to what's reliable sources and, and things like that of power and what options you have. But now on this episode, we're going to get a little deeper because now we're going to start this journey in 695.3C, which is talking about multi-building campus-style complexes and the uniqueness to those, which might be a big university or a big uh, uh, commercial facility, and there's things that you have to think about. So we're going to do that. Before we get started, though, we're going to run our commercial on our sponsor, If you're enjoying a lot of this content, you want to support our show, uh, you can get shirts, mugs, stickers, huggies, um, you can get uh, all kinds of stuff, Uh, coffee mugs, and uh, show that pride. Send us an email. We'd love to show it on our website. But you're going to visit electricianpride.com. So check it out on electricianpride.com. But let's run that commercial, and then we're going to jump into today's lesson. Today's show is sponsored by electricianpride.com. Your one-stop shop for electrician-specific t-shirts, hoodies, phone cases, mugs, die-cut stickers, leggings, and so much more. Featuring unique designs for electricians, journeymen, and master electricians, as well as electrical engineers and electrical inspectors. For more information on all the products that are available, visit us at www.electricianpride.com today. All right. Well, then thank you for all that have visited Electrician Pride and, and look, given a look-see or shared it. And uh, hey, you also can make recommendations for different designs you want to see us create. But again, we have some great Tesla and uh, some other neat stuff over there to show your pride as a master electrician, journeyman, electrical engineer, inspector. Great stuff. So go check it out. It's not really organized very well, but there's a lot of stuff over there. So we do appreciate that as well. Uh, also, for folks that want to donate to the show and say thank you, um, you go over to the masterthenec.com, and at the bottom, you'll see where we have these nifty little screwdrivers and these nifty little lamps that you can use with magnet mount lamps uh, for a donation. We will send you one of those as a thank you, and you really do help us uh, be able to create this free content. Because again, time is money, and when I'm in a studio, it is money, and it takes time, and I have to pay for that time, and I, again, appreciate everybody helping out. All right, so let's pick up where we left off here. We're in part two. Um, We're going to talk about, again, we're still talking about 
uh, sources of power, by the way. Uh, we moved through the individual sources. We ended up moving into the multiple sources. And now we're going to talk about a unique situation when we have multiple building campus-style complexes. Now, the great example of this might be a university uh, where you have power that comes to this campus. And it comes at a much higher. It might be as high as 13,800 volts. That's not going to work for us at our building. But we really don't have the ability to connect to the utility service because of the vast size of this complex. Um, They might bring it to one location, and now we have what's called medium voltage running through the campus. But then it has to hit transformers that are going to be tenant side. We own it. The campus owns them. And now we have to get it into these buildings. So we have to have some allowance for these vast campus-style installations. So here's where we get into um, C of 695.3. And here's what it says. I'll read it, and then we'll try to make some sense of it, if you will. Here's what it says. It says, uh, oh, and I should remind you, we're in the 2020 edition of the National Electrical Code, and we're in 695.3C at this time. It says, multi-building campus-style complexes. It says, if the sources in 695.3a, which we again explained in extreme detail back in part one of this series, so if you don't understand what those sources are, go back and listen to that series, uh, or listen to that episode. It says, again, if the sources in 695.3a are not practicable, and the installation is part of a multi-building campus-style complex, Feeder sources shall be permitted if approved by the authority having jurisdiction and installed in accordance with either 695.3C1 and C3 or C2 and C3. So C3 is common. We haven't looked at it yet. C3 is common to both of these allowances here. I will tell you up front that has to do with selective coordination. Because in these campuses, you could end up with multiple disconnects because of how it's spread out. Um, So um, it does need to have some type of selective coordination for reliability. But at the end of the day, I can meet either C1 and C3 or C2 and C3. So let's look at each one of these in this unique campus style installation. Well, C1 is saying feeder sources. So it says we're... Two or more feeders shall be permitted as more than one uh, as more than one power source if such feeders are connected to or derived from separate utility services. Uh, it says the connections, overcurrent protected devices, and disconnection means for such feeders shall be shall meet the requirements of 695.4b1b. Um, so. You have, we haven't really looked at those additional disconnection means and overcurrent device provisions yet, but it's just saying, look, I'll let you have, let's say I have two utility transformers or utility systems bringing power to my complex. It's a big complex. And I've got a school and I have a fire pump. Okay. So I could come and then I could come out of that uh, maybe a secondary distribution system that's at that facility on that or in close proximity, and now it comes onto my campus's thirteen eight maybe, and then it hits a transformer that's right there near the building that we're working on, and then it changes over. Maybe it's thirteen eight maybe on the primary side, but it comes out on the secondary side. Maybe it's four eighty, and now it comes into the building. Okay, whatever it may be. Now, it stepped it down to use it into this building. Now, these are feeders. These aren't really um, at this point because it's going to be a tenant side me, um, tenant side transformer. So these are sources, again, feeder sources, that now are going to come into the building and it, two separate ones, and that can be considered an actual permitted as treated as one power source. But it's really coming from two sources, okay? Two separate utility services, right? So then again, it's kind of similar. It's going to come in. It's going to come to a piece of equipment. It's going to have kind of a a connection between the two, Kirk Key kind of kind of concept. And again, it's going to allow power if one's down, the other one's there. So this is an allowance 
because I can't get to any of the ones that would be permitted in 695.3a. So this allows me to be able to make a connection to these feeder uh, sources. Now, I did remind you that you need to work with the AHJ on this because they might not feel the same way. They might feel that, well, it should be common sense. If I don't have any utility near me, but I have medium voltage coming from the campus through the campus, that how do I make this connection? And chances are on these big campuses, the utility really stops at the power production, and then the campus picks up all of the wiring and all the medium voltage stuff that would be uh, uh, maybe past what's called the service point into the campus. And again, every situation is uniquely different, so we have to be aware of that. But this is just giving you another option to be able to do this. And you're only going to run into this in your career if you have one of those big multi-building campus-style complexes. All right, could be a school, university, could be a big complex, uh, maybe a big commercial complex. Again, it's not just schools, by the way, um, but that is kind of one example. So we have to meet that rule, and that allows for feeder sources, which that means they would not be utility services, but they would be feeders. Then you have the allowance here, okay? So that's one way to do it. But notice it says I also have to meet C3. And we'll look at this one multiple times because, again, you have another option here. But C3 is talking about selective coordination. Now, selective coordination, I'm going to give you kind of the 30,000-foot view of what that means. If I have some kind of disconnect that's closest to the source and it's overcurrent protection closest to the source and then it kind of uh, upstream somewhere, I have other devices, I don't want some kind of fault in the system to take out the, the disconnect or the, the overcurrent device that's upstream somewhere. So that ends up taking out everything downstream. So selective coordination means that I want to look at the trip curves of all of the devices that are involved in this, sort, in this circuit so that I take out the device that's closest to the problem rather than take out the one that's farthest upstream so that way it shuts down everything. Okay, so selective coordination can come in many ways. It fuses, there's an easy way to do selective coordination with fuses. Um, the manufacturers of fuses will give you a, an easy way to be able to do this. Circuit breakers, a uh, little more complicated, but you have trip curves and they can overlay. But again, if you're up front in this project, you know what you can do? Make it simple. Provide this information to the manufacturers of the switch gear or all the equipment that you're buying and say, look, this all needs to be selectively coordinated. They'll provide you with that coordination. They'll provide you with the equipment, whether it's Eaton or whether it's it's Schneider, whoever it is, um, Siemens, um, this is what they do. And so, again, don't create more stress for yourself trying to look at things like the curves and overlays and and whether this is selectively coordinated. You can do it, but why would you do it? Let the manufacturer do it for you. So early on in design stage, the engineers will take this information and they will present it to the, the, the manufacturers of the equipment and they will tell you what they need uh, in order to be selectively coordinated. And you just, that'll go on to the drawings and you just follow it. Okay, trust me, at this level, it's going to pretty much have some kind of design professional involved in it. So again, don't overly complicate it, but I do need you to know that selective coordination is important, and that is the concept of why we selectively coordinate so that we trip the device closest to the problem and not so far upstream that it takes out everything else downstream. You with me? All right, so that's kind of selective coordination. So if you choose C1, which is the, the two or more feeder sources um, uh, from two separate utilities, then, um, then what happens is you also have to selectively coordinate everything downstream. Now, there's going to be multiple disconnection means in this application, and that's what we're going to look at when we get to 695.4b1b. But right now, just keep that concept. Just just remember, we got to have that selective coordination, and it's important role here. Now, what if we want to meet C2 and C3? Okay, because remember, there's a there's an or in there. So, if we don't want to have the multiple feeder sources, what can we do? Well. C2 of 695.3 says we can have a feeder and an alternate source. So it says a feeder shall be permitted as a normal source of power if an alternate source of power independent 
from the feeder is provided. Now it says the connections, um, the connections over current protection devices and disconnection means for such feeders shall meet the requirements of 695.4B1B. Okay. And of course, we haven't looked at that yet. Okay, but that is also, again, going to allow me to have other additional uh, disconnection means and other additional overcurrent protected devices uh, are going to be permitted. Whereas typically you only have, as a general rule, you have the ability to have only one single disconnecting means. This is unique when it comes to multi-campus style complexes where you could end up having, because of proximity and space and distance, multiple disconnects that are involved, okay? So again, keep it up there where we know what we're talking about. But again, if you're in this unique little beast of multi-building campuses, there's things that you just have to be aware of. But I could have a feeder, okay, in this multi-campus style application. And in that's the case, I have that feeder, but then I can have an alternate source. And the alternate source could be a generator, that might be my alternate source, okay? So just kind of keep that, you know, that kind of concept in your mind, all right? And, of course, again, selective coordination. Uh, and, again, here's something important. So when you're thought about in your mind, you're probably sitting there still going, oh, God, this selective coordination thing. I know who I'm going to pass that on to because I don't want the burden, all right? As an electrician, you certainly don't want the burden. Well, in the 2020 code, we have some text that was added. And so let me read it so they can ease that stress. It says, selective coordination shall be selected by a licensed professional engineer or other qualified persons engaged primarily in the design, installation, and maintenance of electrical systems. Now, unless your state amends this, a master electrician in Texas, for example, is able to design, install, and maintain electrical systems. So this says a professional engineer or other qualified person who's engaged in it. If that's your job to design these things. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Then you don't have to be a professional engineer. I'm just kind of making sure that you understand that your level of expertise might be greater than somebody else's. And so you should be afforded the ability. Now, some states amend this, and they only allow a professional engineer. Okay? So, again, keep those things in mind. Personally, me, as a master electrician, and I know how to size these things, um, I don't want that liability. I'm going to let the engineer do it. I'm going to let them do it. I'm going to let them take the responsibility. Right? Something doesn't happen and the building burns, starts getting on fire, and the fire pump's not adequately designed or the source of power is not determined or whatever. And now people can't get out of the building and they die. I don't want them to come to me. If the engineer designs it and they come to me and it still fails, they're going to come to me and I'll say, hey, I designed it based on the engineer. I feel sorry for something that happened, but I did it based on the engineer's design. I want somebody else to be the scapegoat here. Seriously. It's a tragedy but I don't want to lose my business and my livelihood over somebody else's mistake. I'm just saying, it's, this is a big deal, all right? So anyway, you have to make your own decision, okay? I'm just, just saying, all right? And it also goes on to say, the selection shall be documented and made available to those authorized to design, install, maintain, and operate the system. So all the information in the design, again, uh, has to be made available, uh, for this uh, for this uh, selective coordination, 
there is an exception to the rule. It says selective coordination shall not be required between two overcurrent devices located in series if no load or connect uh, no loads are connected in parallel with the downstream devices. So basically, you're running through one, and there's one downstream, and there's nothing else that's running in parallel. Then there's no reason to select selective coordinate the two. If one's at 100 amps and the other one's at 100 amps, and they're in series and they run into each other in and out, then there's no need to selectively coordinate those. They're both at the exact same. But only in caveat if, again, there's no other loads that are connected in parallel with those downstream devices. Okay, so as long as it's one supply to it, hits the, discon- uh, hits the actual uh, device that's being selectively coordinated, and then hits another one downstream in series, and then ends up hitting the, the fire pump or controller or whatever load, let's just say, I'm just using this example, I don't need to selective coordinate those two because they both are the exact same rating. Okay, and that might happen more than you than you think. Right, um, but if I have a a device, let's say, and I'm selectively coordinating it, and then downstream it breaks off into a parallel application for two other devices, then that's not going to work because I have devices downstream that are in parallel. So this is very much a series rule. If I'm hitting one device and then I hit the next one after it, then those devices are, are uh, those overcurrent devices are. In, in series, then I'm okay that I can have this exception. But if I have one and then it taps off of that and it hits parallel application before it gets to the ultimate whatever the load is, then guess what? Or the ultimately paralleled into other overcurrent devices, then no, I can't use this exception. Because so this is very much a series thing, all right? Okay. All right, so that's your exception um, to, the, to the rule when it comes to selective coordination. Other than that, Selective coordination is the beast that it is, and you need to have the design engineer take care of that. Okay. Um, so the next thing that's going to leave us is let's talk a little bit about D, which is this on-site standby generator as the alternate source of power. Because you already saw that we have a reference to an alternate source, a source, a source uh, for this multi-campus style building, the feeder, the feeder option and alternate source option. Again, the feeder. On that campus, again, it could come from a 13A that hits a transformer, that hits a building, and I don't have two going in the building, which was the which was C1. Um, but I have one going in, but now I can have an alternate source, which in this case, it's the on-site standby generator as the alternate source. Okay, so what are the rules for that generator? Well, here's what it says in 395.3D. On-site standby generator as an alternate source. It says, an on-site standby generator used as an alternate source of power shall comply with 695.3 D1 through D3. Again, you'll note that beside that, it has all the rules also in NFPA 20, which again, extraction from NFPA 20. Um, And so we have three things that we take into account here. Uh, One is capacity. Two is the connections. And three is adjacent disconnects, okay? And I'll kind of explain a little bit of this so that, again, it's, and I'm going to keep it really high level so that there's no confusion. All right, number one, let's talk capacity. Obviously, before I even define what capacity is, you and I know what that means. I've got to have a generator that can actually handle the starting as well as the running of the fire pump, right? So, again, so... And again, also, I could have a generator that does other loads as well. Yeah, Did you, I'm sure you knew that. But if the generator is size large enough, then I can supply the fire pump. But I also can supply other loads as well, as long as I size my generator accordingly. But at least for the fire pump, it's got to be able to handle the startup of that motor and the running of that motor. Okay? So here's what it says for capacity says the generator shall have sufficient capacity to allow normal starting and running of the motors driving the fire pump while supplying all other simultaneously operated loads. Okay, So again, things like the jockey pumps, uh, things like the other accessories, uh, all of that, if that's all, all that's being powered by this generator, it's going to have to be 
uh, adequate. Now, the question that people ask me is, says, well, if I have that fire pump, which is the generator for the fire pump, but I have some other optional standby loads that I want to run, can I do that? Absolutely. Again, capacity is key, but if you have other loads, then you can do something called load shedding. So here's what it says, but it has to be automatic. So here's what it says under capacity. It says automatic shedding of one or more optional standby loads in order to comply with this capacity requirement shall be permitted. So I can have a generator and is and I can have it supply other optional loads as long as when I need that fire pump to take place, that I can shed off those optional loads so that I have adequate capacity for that fire pump in that generator. Now, could I oversize the generator and it doesn't matter? Sure. But most people aren't going to do that. Most people are going to have the generator and they're going to supply the fire pump and they might have other loads And in order for the generator to not to be overly sized, because, again, they get expensive as they move up the ladder in KW, um, what you might have is a system that simply says the moment that that fire pump comes on, that that it actually sheds any of those other loads, it shuts them down so that the generator can focus on that fire pump to meet the rules of what? Having enough capacity to handle the starting and the running and all other associated loads dealing with the fire pump system. That's an important thing. And in the most cases that I dealt with that, um, they usually did not put anything else on those generators. It was there just for the fire pump. I just don't want you to think that you can't, but you need to think about those things uh, in the design. Or the engineer, whoever's designing it, needs to think about those things. But yes, you can. And it states that right under capacity. So check that out. If you say, no, Paul, no, no, you can't have anything else on it. Certainly can. It tells you you can right here in the code. Uh, The next thing is number two, which is the connection. It says a tap ahead of the generator disconnected means shall not be required. Okay, so it doesn't mean that I have to tap ahead of the generator's disconnection means. A lot of these generators, large ones, will come with a disconnection means on it. And so it's telling me I do not have to tap ahead of it, all right? Not something, it's not the same as over in the service. You remember what we talked about in part one when we're making a connection on the supply side in service equipment, as long as we're making a connection to the supply conductors before the service disconnection mean, that's an option. As long as it's not in the same vertical or in the same enclosure as the service disconnection means, I could have a tap. You remember that back in part one? Well, in this one, it's telling you, okay, you know what? You don't have to do that for the generator. You don't have to get, and that's a good thing because a lot of these generators, that's all factory wired. Um, I don't want to make any kind of tap on the um, a connection on the ahead of the disconnection means for this generator, okay? So that's telling me that. And then the next thing it's saying is the adjacent disconnects. Now this says the requirements in 430.113 shall not apply. Uh, this mainly happens when we're coming in from the generator and we're going to come in and we're going to hit the transfer and controller combiner or separate whatever it is and you don't have the need for additional disconnects there. It's not necessary, especially for the one that's coming from the generator. Okay, So you don't end up having a, a, a number of generators because 430.113 talks about having disconnects on your sources, right? Uh, sources of energy coming in to the motor. Well, we don't want that in this scenario. So thir- uh, 430.113 is just said, you know what, ignore that. It just ignore it when you're coming in with the generator. Don't worry about it. Don't need to have, don't have to have an adjacent disconnect to it. And so it's coming in, and usually this is not even going to be an issue because usually what's happening is you're coming in from this generator and you're going to hit the fire pump controller anyway that's inside of a fire pump control room anyway. So you wouldn't want an additional disconnect there. Okay, Just come right into the controller. All right, so... That's what that's talking about for the generator. And again, that's in a that's in a, a, a thirty thousand foot view. If you want to go read four thirty point one thirteen to get a feeling of it, um, that's fine. Just know that that doesn't apply here in this rule. Very specific 
to on-site standby generators uh, when used as an alternate source. All right, now, so now we're going to get into some of the nuances of these power sources, and we're talking about uh, when we get into things like arrangement or things like transfer of power and power source selection and things like that. So next we're going to look at 695.3E, and that says arrangement. What does arrangement mean? It says all power sources shall be located and arranged to protect against damage by fire from within the premise and exposing hazards. Um, one of the ways that we used to look at this is if you're feeding the, the you're bringing in these so- sources um, and you're bringing into a building, you didn't want to route them directly over the equipment so that the equipment blew up. It would take everything out above it. Um, so you have to think about your routing, how you run these power sources in a way that if one piece of equipment were to blow up, that it doesn't take out the entire system. You know what I'm saying? Um, so if I have a certain part of, let's say, a switch gear, and I'm utilizing one of the allowances in 695.3A1, maybe I'm bringing the utility, um, I don't want to route those over the portion of the switch gear that might be with the service disconnect and the subsequent feeder uh, breakers downstream that might be all built into this big equipment. I want to route it so that it's away from that and it's more towards the portion of the equipment which is dedicated for this tap that I'm going to make if I'm going to make that type of tap. Um, It's just kind of saying, think about how you're routing things. We don't want something to take out something else inadvertently. So you have to think about your scheme of how things are arranged and how you're putting them in a building so that they have that um, adequate separation so that one part of the building, if something happens, can't take out the other part of it. That that kind of that reliability that we're trying to build into our design, right? Um, it also says that if you have uh, reading on, it says if you have multiple power sources, uh, shall be arranged so that the fire is in one source does not cause an interruption of the other source. Of course, you saw other examples of where we could have multiple sources, right? And this is just making you and say, okay. Um, you might have an independent source. Think about how you're routing it. Or you might be pushed into the aspect where you're going to have multiple sources. Again, 695.3b. Think about how you're routing them so something happens in one does not take out the other. Okay? Simply how you're laying things out in your design. Okay? That's all about arrangement. Okay? Uh, so the next one is F. And F talks about transfer of power. Now, what are we talking about transfer of power? We're talking about transfer of power from, let's say we have the uh, a transfer switch and we have the normal power coming from, let's say, the utility and it's not considered reliable. So now we have the other power coming from an on-site generator. Where is this transfer of power going to take place in the event that we need to shift to the alternate source? Well, this says transfer of power And it says transfer of power to the fire pump controller between the individual source and one alternate source shall take place within the pump room. Okay, so you could have the controller that also has the transfer switch in it, or you could have a separate transfer switch and a separate controller. And typically these other sources would come into the transfer switch switch before it gets to the controller. Um, more often than not, I saw them as a combo unit because, believe it or not, um, it it was pricing-wise, it was uh, cheaper to buy the combo than it was to buy the two individuals. Um, but again, I'm not going to quote that, um, but most people just buy the combination so they can get the transfer and they get the controller. Now, there might be a situation where you have a separate source uh, coming in like a separate service, and you don't have the transfer. It's its separate source coming straight in. It's coming to the controller, right? And it's considered reliable. If it's considered reliable, then, you know, you might not have the transfer. So it is available for transfer. It is available uh, if you have, again, you don't need a, a, another source. Um, but most often than not, I saw combinations which had the transfer and it had the um controller all in one. It was a listed power uh, fire pump system. Uh, And so again, 
and it had its own third-party NRTL. Usually somebody like FM uh, would do the evaluation on it, and it had everything involved in it. All right, so, and it's got to take place inside. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Of the pump room. Now, usually these pump rooms are already rated anyway. Okay, whether it's, uh, you know, depending on the, the, the uh, construction code, you know, the IBC, International Building Code, or even if it's the NFPA building, I guess, what is that, NFPA 101, whatever the design for the building uh, and everything that dictates in the, sta- um, in, in the uh, NFPA 20 document, uh, that room is going to be rated. So, again, that, that transfer of power has to take place within that pump room. So that question comes up a lot, uh, but it's also stated in NFPA 20 under section 9.6.2 as well. So again, all we did was regurgitate that information. Uh, the next one is G and G. And again, if you forgot where we're at, we're still in uh, 695.3. We're just at G now. It says power source selection. It says selection of power source shall be performed by a transfer switch listed for fire pump service. So, again, you're just not going to go grab any off-the-shelf transfer switch. Now, if it's built into a fire pump system inside of a controller combination, then obviously it's going to be listed for this, but they do make separate transfer switches that for fire pump systems, and they obviously make separate controllers. So, again, um, just make sure it's listed, and I can pretty much assure you you're going to know it's listed by the amount of money you pay for that bad mamma jamma. I'm just saying, they're expensive, but hey, they're there to do a job, okay, to save lives. Not necessarily to save a building, but to save lives. Now, it might inadvertently save the building, but its goal is to give you enough time to get out of the building. That's what the fire pump's kind of all about. All right, and the last one we'll look at here uh, of importance to us is, is H. Now, H says overcurrent device selection. Now, this is in the event that you have overcurrent devices that you're selecting. You might not have an overcurrent device, but in the event that you have to select one, it says, an instantaneous trip circuit breaker shall be permitted in lieu of an overcurrent device specified in 695.4B2A1, provided that it is part of a transfer switch assembly listed for fire pump services that complies with 695.4 B2A2, all right? So that has to do with a a fire pump service. It's a transfer switch assembly, and if it meets the allowances for overcurrent device selection, and you'll see that under that overcurrent protection, there's a lot of things that you have to meet. We're not going to go into detail on those, but you have to meet them. If that's your choice of selection for that overcurrent device selection, then it has to meet all of those rules within that transfer switch. So I do have a choice to go with an instantaneous trip circuit breaker. It's permitted, and I can use that in lieu of all these things that I have to meet, okay? All these little things that I have to meet in 695.4B2A2, which can be very cumbersome. So many times what you're going to see is inside of that transfer switch assembly, they will use what's called an instantaneous trip breaker, and it's permitted to be there. And sometimes it can really throw you off because you're looking at it, and it looks rather large. Remember, it has to be listed. It has to be a part of the fire pump service. Okay, it's you know, Well, it has to be a part of that transfer switch assembly that is listed for fire pump service. Okay, Then it's okay. It could be. And again, remember, This is usually going to take place in the equipment. That's why it's so important for the equipment to be listed. Okay? All right? So those different things that you have to be aware of if you're going to have overcurrent device selection, and you have some rules here for this type of thing. 
And again, that's only going to pretty much come into play when you have some type of disconnect and overcurrent device, which is not always required. We've already talked about when you might have that disconnect and overcurrent protection, but there are many cases where you might run it from a transformer utility, and it runs under the building. It's in uh, 230.6. It's considered outside of the building, and it pops up inside the uh, fire pump room, and it goes right to the fire pump controller, and then all of that takes place inside that fire pump controller, and there they could use an instantaneous trip as that function as part of that equipment. So kind of there's different ways to apply this, but again, you don't always need the disconnect and the overcurrent protection. But when you do, you need to know how to select it, okay? All right, so the next thing we're going to go to is 695.4. Now, this talks about continuity of power. Uh, continuity of power means that we just need to make sure that, that, that everything is working, that everything's connected, that we've got a good power source, uh, and I've got transfer switches, and I've got everything's going to run, uh, and, and there's not going to be any problems or any hiccups that could cause a problem. So when you read continuity of power, here's what it says under 695.4. It says continuity of power. It says circuits that supply electric motor driven fire pumps shall be supervised from inadvertent disconnection as covered in 695.4a or b now one of the things when we say supervised this means that the controller is going to have lighting on it and things that that again these controllers are expensive and they're expensive because they're doing a lot of things they're, they're monitoring things like phase conversion and making sure that that's not screwed up. They're, they're monitoring the source. They do all these things. And one of the things that it has to do is to monitor or supervise the continuity of power. All right? And it'll have different things like alarms on it that give notification. And in many times, these things are also connected to the fire alarm system. And so, again, all these, I guess I should say probably all times that it's connected to it, but you could have a fire pump in a building that does not have a fire alarm system. And you have a fire pump, okay, and it has its own separate controller, own separate monitoring, again, depending on the age of the building. But most new systems are probably going to have some inner connection between the fire alarm systems, obviously, sprinklers and and strobes and horns and, and the fire pump, and everything gets monitored, all right? That's for the continuity of power. Now, I talked about the connections that it needs to monitor. And that is 695.4A or B. All right? So let's talk about A first. What kind of, of connection are we talking about here? Now, this one, A, it says direct connection. What do we mean? Well, let me read it, and then I'll paint the picture, and it'll be clear as day. It says... The supply conductors shall directly connect the power source to the listed fire pump controller, a listed combination fire pump controller, and power transfer switch, or a listed fire pump power transfer switch. So I have three things to take into consideration. Now, what this is saying is that I could go directly from let's say I have a utility transformer outside and I brought a separate service and it's going to be that utility transformer. It comes into the building. It can say routed outside of the building, if you will. Can remember it's going to be outside of the building. Can't run them through the building. Otherwise, you'd need that disconnect to change it over to a feeder. But we run it outside of the building. And of course, there's other ways to do this. You can encase it in two inches of concrete or two inches of brick. Again, go back and look at 230.6 because we will see that a little later. But anyway, if it's a direct connection, it's saying I'm going straight from the source of power directly to the fire pump controller or to the controller and transfer switch or to the transfer switch itself, which then subsequently it's going to go from there to the controller. I have very specific directions here to, to create something called a direct connection. And your fire pump controller is going to monitor this. Okay, It's just going to make sure it still detects uh, voltage in this application. That's kind of what it's monitoring, right? So that's called a direct connection. And so with this direct connection, you'll notice something. I have no disconnects in between the power source 
and the fire pump components. There's no disconnect in there. So that's called a direct connection. Now, you are permitted to have disconnection means and overcurrent protection between the source and that controller, that transfer switch, or the combination of both. But that is a specific rule when you might have that feeder, that tap again ahead of the service disconnect in a separate enclosure up to that utility. That's where this would come into play because that wouldn't be a direct connection. Um, there's just, you have to know this stuff and you have to know when or when you can't. Uh, one example that I ran into uh, in, in um, Richmond, and I was one of the, in, in the uh, head inspectors there, or the uh, engineer, and I went out to an uh, inspection, and they had a transformer there. It was, it was from utility. It was a really big hospital, so they had its own service transformer was installed. And it went to the building, and they had the disconnect right on the outside of the building. And then it went from there, obviously a feeder, and it went in and it went to the fire pump. Um, well, that, that actual disconnect was grossly undersized. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how to follow the rules uh, for, for sizing the overcurrent protection at that disconnect. Um, now, the, why did they have to install one? Because it was an existing building and they were being adding this fire pump system and when doing it, they could not route the conductors, uh, the service conductors, outside of the building. They, they just couldn't do it. And it was too cumbersome to try to run it in and encase it in concrete or encase it in two inches of brick. They just couldn't. To make it consider outside, they just couldn't do it. So the best solution was to come right over. And to be honest with you, the disconnect was only, uh, it was in, in overcurrent, was only about, geez, you know, not more than, eight feet away, uh, and it was on the side of the building. Uh, it was 800 uh, amps rated. So um, anyway, they, they kind of grossly sized it. In fact, I don't think it was 800 at the time. It was only 600, but it ended up needing to be 800. But anyway, they had to do this because they couldn't make the direct connection. They had to go with the uh, 695.4B option and to put this disconnect. And they put that disconnect in, and uh, ultimately ahead overcurrent protection. And then, again, remember that overcurrent protection is not for overload. It's only short-circuiting ground fault protection, okay? And then everything coming out of that into the building was now a feeder. Now, we still have rules that they had to meet, which, again, caused them a lot of heartburn because they thought that it was going to be an easy solution. Not so easy, but this is what they had to do, Okay. All right, because you had conflicting rules. You can't bring service conductors into the building more than a certain number of feet. Of course, the code says 230.70A1 says that they need to be outside or nearest point of entry. Um, and it just wasn't practical for them. So in order to meet that, they had to put the disconnect. Well, then they were like, okay, it's, it's just feeders now. I can run them throughout the building. Then I was like, no. Now you have to meet some unique rules for these feeders under 695.6. And they were like, oh, well, now it's more complicated. And I wasn't trying to be complicated, but again, it, these fire pumps can be quite complicated. But again, remember what they're there for. They're there to give us a chance of getting out of this building. Okay? People get trapped in buildings all the time from fires, and the fire pump system with the sprinklers tries to buy me some time, and that's what we're really trying to go for, buying me some time. All right, so that is the direct connection. Okay? Now, let's look at 695.4. B. Now, this is assuming here that we can have that that we would be installing a disconnection means and subsequent overcurrent protection. Okay, so kind of kind of a given. So B one talks about the number of disconnection means. So again, let's kind of use that theory of a utility transformer. Uh, again, keep it simple. Now you already listened in part one of all of the different sources. So let's just assume that we didn't have reliability. So we had the utility coming to the building, but we went on and had a separate uh, utility uh, transformer placed, and that was supplying just the, the uh, fire pump. Let's kind of go with that to keep it simple, right? Now, it came in, and so in our case, we'll use that building in Richmond. It hit a disconnection means. Okay, so what the rule says here, the number of disconnects, there's a general rule, and it says number of disconnection means, and if you're following along, 695.4B1 
A. It says, a single disconnection means and associated overcurrent protective devices shall be permitted. See, they're not required. They shall be permitted because you still have an option of what's called a direct connection. Okay? So they shall be permitted to be installed between the fire pump power source, in our case it was the transformer, and one of the following. And you'll see the list there. There's three items there. Well, those three items are the same things that we kind of talked about in that direct connection. But this is allowing me to have a disconnect in between the source and either the fire pump controller, the fire pump power transfer switch, or the combination of both. And you'll notice that there's a very powerful word that's before each one of these different pieces of equipment. It says listed. It is listed for use as a fire pump system. It has been listed, evaluated, and now since it's been listed, since it's been evaluated, it allows the AHJ to approve it, okay, based on these listings. Okay, so there you go. Um, and so there, so I can have this, this disconnection means and subsequent uh, overcurrent protection in between my source and one of these three items here. Okay, now, num- uh, next we'll move on to B. Now, B corresponds with something that we talked about previously at the beginning of this episode, and that was that multi-building campus-style complex. Here's what it says, feeder sources. It says, for systems installed under the provisions of 695.C only, so only under those provisions, and we discussed that again at nausea, it says additional disconnection means and the associated overcurrent protective devices shall be permitted. Now, why do we have to make this statement? Because the general rule says I can only have one single disconnect. But since we discussed earlier that based on the complexity of a campus and the number of buildings and how you get from point A to point B, we could have multiple disconnects in the equation. And this rule is saying, okay, under that specific installation practice, we'll let you have more than the one Disconnection means, okay, the one overcurrent device. We're going to let you do it. And so that's what this rule means. So, again, if you didn't have this, then you'd really, as a designer, and you're encountering a multi-building campus, you're kind of screwed because of the complexity of the buildings and how it's arranged. So this gives you the ability to have additional disconnection means and um, subsequent overcurrent protection as well, okay? So that's an important one if you're in that realm, okay? Um, Probably... 99%, 98%, 97% of electricians out there will never, ever deal with a multi-building campus-style complex installation. But those electricians that do are usually industrial electricians. They work at a facility, and they're familiar with it. And this is is there for them. Okay? All right. And then C, again, we're talking about disconnects. C says on-site standby generators. It says where an on-site standby generator is used, to supply a fire pump, an additional disconnecting means, and an associated overcurrent protective devices shall be permitted. Okay? Not required, but permitted to be applied. Okay? So you have these rules in here for that disconnect. Okay? And they're permitting you to have it, all these you know, applications. So, again, This is allowing for additional disconnection means and associated overcurrent protective devices shall be printed even for the on-site standby generator because you could have some situations in uh, 445 for generators that might dictate additional um, disconnects. And so you have to really have this allowance, okay? It's permitted, not required, but permitted, all right? So now, let's assume now that we are going to have this overcurrent device selection. We have the disconnect, and we're going to have this, this overcurrent uh, device selection. Here's what it says in 695.4B2. It says, overcurrent device selection. It says, overcurrent devices shall comply with 695.4B2A or B2B. Now, A is the individual source, and B talks about the on-site standby uh, generator, okay? Now, the individual source, it's talking about the overcurrent protective device shall be used, and this is important. 
Here's what it says. A, two, um, so I'm going to look at 695.4B2A, so follow along with me. It says individual sources. It says overcurrent protection for individual sources shall comply with the following. Uh, number one, it says overcurrent protective devices shall be rated to carry indefinitely the sum of the locked rotor current of the largest fire pump motor and the full load current of all the other pump motors and accessory equipment. Okay, so it has to have the lock rotor current of the largest fire pump motor, but then all of the FLC of all of the other pump motors and accessory equipment. Okay, again, that's an extraction from NFPA 20, section 9.2.3.4. So we're just regurgitating it now. Now, it goes on to say this. Where the locked rotor current value does not correspond to the standard overcurrent device size, the next standard overcurrent device size shall be used in accordance with 240.6. Now, why is that important? Because, look, we really do not want, and we're pretty commonly familiar with the next size up allowance in the code, but in this case, we do not want the device to, to go off based on like an overload. So we're allowed to select it based on our locked rotor current. If it does not correspond, then what do we do? We go to the next standard size, and that's perfectly fine. Remember, when this thing engages, we just want it to burn that motor up, really. That's all we want, okay? Now, I will tell you, you don't apply the locked rotor current to sizing the conductors and things like that in, in fire pumps, and many people get confused with that. Uh, we only do this to the overcurrent protection where applied, again, where you're going to actually use the, the disconnect and overcurrent protection. So you have to keep that in mind. It definitely has to be sized to handle that lock rotor current, which is typically six times okay, the rating uh, of the motor. Uh, which is usually given in horsepower, by the way. Uh, and where you can also find this lock rotor information is 430.251. But what I t- is a table, um, and that's locked rotor currents. Uh, but what I tend to tell people most of the time is that I want you to give me the locked rotor current, uh, R- uh, LRC, from the manufacturer of the fire pump motor. I want you to give it, I want it from them. So as an electrician, I spent a lot of time communicating with the different people, and I I made sure there were things in writing and communicated because I wanted these values. Um, And some people get it off the nameplate and all, but I communicated a lot with the manufacturers or whoever was supplying it. Remember, you got to buy everything from somewhere, whether it's a distributor from somebody or a warehouse, whatever it was. I used to like to get that information directly, and I would keep it in a file. You do what you want. Uh, but there is other sources that you can get, obviously, the locked rotor current values, okay? All right, anyway, so, and we're not going to go into a big in-depth calculation series here. We'll, we'll do that for another time. I'm just giving you things that you have to think about. Uh, but again, you can go to the next size. Um, it also ends up here and says, the requirements to carry the locked rotor current indefinitely shall not apply to conductors, okay, or devices other than overcurrent devices in the fire pump motor circuit. So the locked rotor current does apply to the motors uh, for the fire pump. It does apply to the, uh, in this case, to the jockey pump. Okay, the motor's there. Um, but other devices uh, that, uh, other than overcurrent devices in the circuit does not apply. You take its full FLC rating or whatever the rating is of it. So again, Being really aware of sizing with that locked rotor current is critical because we have to make sure that that device is not going to inadvertently trip under lock rotor, okay? So keeping that in mind. And, of course, then there's there's an exception to this rule uh, which says, uh, and I'll read the exception. This is exception. It says, the requirements to carry the locked rotor currents indefinitely shall not apply to feeder overcurrent protection devices installed in accordance with 695.3C. Wow, that's important. Remember we just finished talking about all those other potential disconnects that we could have? I don't have to apply the lock rotor to those 
uh, additional disconnects that are allowed in 695.3C. Okay? I don't have to. And that is very unique to this campus-style atmosphere. All right? So just remember that exception. But any other time, you know, just ignore the exception any other time. Now, you got two here. And again, this is the allowance here that's really talking about when we, we saw this, uh, when we read it back in H for the overcurrent device selection. And remember, it talks about transfer switch assemblies. And it says you had to meet all these rules in 695.4B2A2. That's what it's talking about here. And that is pretty much for those um, transfer switch assemblies. And if you have overcurrent devices in there, then this is where these rules come in. And I will tell you, this this two minutes and 600%, this uh, restart transients at 24 times the full low current, all this is really something that's in the fire pump system equipment, and it takes care of all that, okay? So that's what that would cover. So again, that's great information, but that's going to be pretty much taken care of by the manufacturers of that fire pump controller because it's all listed, and they know these rules that they have to follow, all right? Now, in lieu of this, they might use instantaneous trip because you remember back at 695.3H, it said that I could use an instantaneous trip, which is going to be way higher, by the way. Okay? Way higher. It's still going to... Now, here's what other people ask. If it's so high, does it still protect me from short-circuit and ground fault? Absolutely. That is usually going to be so much higher of, of fault current or short-circuit current that it's going to easily trip the device if that's the situation. We just do not want it to trip it on overload because as this fire pump gets going, it's going to run hard. It's going to be pushing that water. It's going to have a propeller. It's, it's pushing this water. It's going to heat up, and eventually it's going to burn up, and that's okay. That's fine. Not a problem. So we just want to keep all those things in perspective when we're sizing in here. Now, the, the last one we want to look at here is remember it said also or overcurrent selection R for B2B. Now that is its on-site standby generators. Okay, so let's read that one for the overcurrent protection. It says, I mean, we're off of the other sources now, the ind- uh, independent source or individual sources. Now we're talking about the generator source when it comes to overcurrent device selection. It says, overcurrent protection devices between an on-site standby generator and a fire pump controller shall be selected and sized to allow for instantaneous pickup of the full pump room's load, but shall not be larger than the value selected to comply with 430.62 to provide short circuit protection only. Okay? What in the world do they mean? Well, this is, this is not confusing. All this is saying is, look, if, I'm got, if I've got this feeder and I'm sizing the protection based on 430.62, which is, if for you that are not familiar with it, it's really the little, it's, it's a companion to 430.52, which is a short circuit and ground fault protection requirements where you have to go to that little table in 430.52. Well, 430.62 is still short circuit and ground fault protection, but now it's for feeders. So if you follow the rules in 430.62 for the motors in question, and ultimately what it's going to do, it's going to send you back to 430.52 for selection based on that feeder. And again, you got to remember how to do motors and things like that in 430.24, which we again cover in another episode when we deal with motors. And again, we're still talking motors here. What this is saying when it comes to the generator, I don't have to do it for the a lock rotor current. I can do it based on my calculation for the motors, just like I would do a grouping of motors that's supplied by this generator. And I would use 430.62. And obviously, we're going to use for sizing 430.24 as well um, for things like the feeders. But at the end of the day, it's going to send me to 430.52 so I can use that table. And it's basically telling me that I'm going to do what? that I'm going to do the actual uh, calculation necessary to select that overcurrent device, and that's okay for the generator application. I don't need to take the locked rotor current 
into consideration in this application, right? When I'm sizing the overcurrent device for the on-site standby generator application. You with me? So that's what it's saying here, and it's telling you this point blank. But I still have to make sure that the generator, standby generator, uh, when I'm supplying the fire pump controller, it needs to be selected. The overcurrent needs to be selected. And so, again, if we're using overcurrent, it says it needs to be selected in size to allow for the instantaneous pickup of the full pump room load, but shall not be larger than the value selected to comply with 430.62, which, again, is for feeder short-circuiting ground fault protection. So size the motors and everything as you normally would for the motors, and that's going to be the size. And you'll have a certain percentage, depending on what type of overcurrent you're having, whether it's inverse time or, or whatnot. And again, like 250% if it's inverse time. And you do that, and that's all it needs to be, right? If you're going to have that, that overcurrent protection, right? So that's what it's saying here. So in this one, on-site standby generator, not necessary to be sized for lock rotor, but you still have to be able to handle the pickup of the full pump room. Uh, and again... Uh, it has to be sized to allow for that instantaneous pickup. It can handle all the loads, okay? And then you just use the normal rules that you would for motors. See how these work together? Pretty neat. It, it kind of sends you back to 430 because, again, at the end of the day, it is a motor, by, by, okay? All right. So, anyway, there you go. So, that's all we're going to talk about in this episode. We're going to leave off because the next thing we're going to get into is talking about the disconnecting means, okay? So where one is selected, we saw the rules for overcurrent device selection. Now we're going to talk about the rules for the disconnection means selection, okay? We already have the rule that tells us we could have one. We're not required to have one. We could have one. Now we got to see, well, okay, now we're going to have one because we need one. How are we going to select it, and what do we have to to take into consideration. All right, so that's all we're going to talk about here in part two. We're going to stop right there. Um, Again, if you want to learn more about residential, commercial, industrial, grounding and bonding, uh, and you want to learn from me and you want to work with me, um, I encourage you to check out our courses over on masterthenec.com. Or if you want to get a part of the Electrician's Academy, check out electricalinstructor.com. And those courses allow a lot of, of reading, but you have a lot of coursework. And then you interact with me because I personally grade all of your competency reviews. And these aren't ABCD type of competency reviews. You literally have to know the material and write it down in your own words. And then I will read it and I will give you feedback on maybe some other things you need to know or maybe things you need to consider. That way you learn. Okay, so that's what our programs are all about. And we have them in residential, commercial, industrial, grounding and bonding. We have an in-depth NEC analysis course called the Fast Tracks. All those things are available over on masterthenec.com or also over on um, the Electrician's Academy at electricalinstructor.com or again, masterthenec.com. Until next time, folks, stay safe, God bless, and join us for part three where we're going to jump into the disconnection means. All right, till next time, take care.